So if you grab a Bible or your phone, um, because um, I think it'd be quite useful to have it open because I'll be jumping sort of throughout the passage throughout. Um, We are in Joshua 2, Joshua chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell us what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So today I'm following on on our sermon series of uh, Heroes of the Faith, um, and we're looking at this woman called Rahab, and specifically we're going to have a look at the decisions she made and how she made those decisions and how that might apply to our faith today. Now, I don't know if you're any good at making decisions. Um, I'm pretty good at the big decisions. What job am I going to do? Where shall we live? Those sorts of things. When it comes to the everyday decisions, what shall I wear, what shall I eat, I'm not great. I find that quite difficult. Um, And when Josh, my husband, and I first were dating, we went on a trip to Venice. It was our first little holiday. Um, And because it was kind of part of a birthday present to me, the first night we were there, Josh said to me, you can pick the restaurant tonight. 
think he thought it was a bit of a birthday treat, whereas for me, it was a bit of a nightmare. I hated, I hated deciding where we were eating and what we were going to eat. But we tried, so we walked around Venice and, and looked at those like menus they have outside the European restaurants where you can have a read, and we looked at about 10, 11, 12, and I was getting more and more anxious that I picked the wrong one, the food would be terrible, and we'd break up. And then... Eventually, I decided on a restaurant that I thought looked quite cool. So we went inside, and they were full. And at that point, I burst into tears. I was like, I can't do this. This is too difficult. And Josh was like, what is going on? Um, and, and eventually, we were like, OK. So he realized that this was probably no longer a treat. So we just went to the nearest restaurant that we could see. Um, and OK, the food wasn't I like amazing, but it was fine. It was good food, and it was in Venice, so pretty much everything's pretty good. Um, and it appeared from the outside that it was just a normal restaurant. But when we were inside, it turned out that this restaurant was Hook-themed. And by Hook, I mean the pirate from Peter Pan. Now, for some people, that might just be a weird thing. For us, that was actually quite significant. Both of us love Peter Pan. I think Josh tries to think that he will never grow up. I think that's part of the reason why he likes Peter Pan, which if you've met him, you might understand. Um, but we just love it. We've watched it loads of times. We like, knew that it was quite important to us. So being in this restaurant was like, oh, actually, this is quite, this is quite cool. Um, and suddenly, my dis failure to decide anything was kind of wiped away. Um, Josh now brings this story out at dinner parties and quite enjoys the tale, um, but also reminds me when I'm choosing something that no one's going to die if I pick the wrong restaurant. It's actually fine. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're not at the stage where you cry over choosing a restaurant, um, but how do you find making decisions? Um, and how do you find making decisions where it comes to your faith um, in Jesus Christ? So when we're looking at our passage today in Joshua 2 and the story of Rahab um, and her decisions, I thought it might be helpful to set it in a little bit of context. For some of you, it might have been a while since you read the book of Joshua. Some of you might never have read the book of Joshua. So I thought I'd just put it in a little bit of context so it becomes a maybe a little bit clearer. So this book of Joshua is taken um, just after a long four-book story of Moses. Moses has led the people of God, called the Israelites, out of slavery where they were in Egypt. They wandered the desert for about 40 years, and in this wandering, they received some food straight from God. Um, they received some laws and commands straight from God. They then consequently broke those laws and commands from God, um, and then eventually they reached what was called the promised land. Now, because on the way they hadn't trusted God as much as they should and they broke some of the laws, God said no one who left Egypt will be able to enter the promised land, including Moses. It'll all be the next generation, which is where Joshua comes in. Joshua um, was assigned the leader to lead the people of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. Now, this promised land was currently inhabited by a number of different tribes of people. One of those tribes were called the Canaanites, and they were currently in Jericho, which is where our story is set, and Rahab was a Canaanite. Now, God was calling Israel to defeat, so God's people, Israel, who'd come out of Egypt, to defeat the Canaanites. Um, now, I'm not going to go too much into the violence that we see in the whole book of Joshua um, and the reason why there is quite a lot of violence. But if you're interested, um, the Bible Project website has a load of good videos and articles all about it, um, if you'd want to have a little look. Um, but in short, the Canaanites who were in this promised land um, were known for their immorality. They were known for destructive sexual behavior, injustice, harmful ritual worship, and child sacrifice. And God was calling his people to be bigger and better than that, to live at a higher standard. 
So, at the start of our reading today, we see Joshua send some spies into the land of Jericho to see what they could see ready for this new invasion. And at this point, the spies enter Rahab's house. Now, we're told Rahab was a prostitute, which means that house was actually probably more like an inn or a tavern. Um, And the language they use suggests that they weren't there to sleep with her as a prostitute. They were there to stay as lodgings, um, which is quite nice for our men in the story. Um, But by verse 4, it's very clear that they're no longer just staying in her house. By verse 4, we see that actually they're now hiding in her house or more specifically, on the roof of her house. Um, Flat roofs rather than pointy roofs, which makes it a bit easier. Um, So they're staying hiding at the top of Rahab's house. Um, But for this to happen, Rahab has had to change sides. Rahab was no longer supporting the Canaanites of Jericho, but was supporting the Israelites, God's people. Now that was a big decision. And from the passage, she seems to have come to that decision on the spot when the king of Jericho's men arrived to turf out the spies. Didn't seem to be much umming and ahhing, no crying as far as the passage tells us about which decision to make. She seems to be very clear about that decision. And that decision is a big one. It will ultimately change her life. Whether she's found out by the Canaanites or she's saved by the Israelites, her life is now completely different. And so today we're going to have a look at how she made those decision, that decision, and what we can learn from it. So the first thing I think this passage tells us about the decision Rahab made was that it was based on her faith and knowledge of God's character and works. Her faith and knowledge of God's character and works. In verse 9, we see Rahab saying, I know that the Lord has given you this land And a great fear has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab isn't relying on the empty hope of Israel's God, but on the actions and faithfulness that she has heard about of the previous generations. She's making this decision not based on a myth or based on a tale, but based on a truth that she's heard. And this passage is actually a fulfillment of the prophecy that's made earlier in the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 15, where it was prophesied that the people of Canaan will melt away, terror and dread will fall on them. And that's what Rahab is saying is happening now. And like Rahab, we're not called to make decisions based on empty promises and whimsical wishes. In the book of Acts, following the early church, we see the Apostle Peter declare to a crowd, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter was declaring what had happened, the truth of what had happened. 
And in the Apostle Paul's letter to the early church in Rome, he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So making that daily decision to follow Jesus and accept the grace that he has won for us on the cross is a decision based on all that he has done in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. It's a decision made in faith and trust, but based on evidence. If this is a completely new idea to you, or you'd like to explore it a bit further, or you know someone else who'd like to potentially explore the idea of faith based on something more than just vague hope, um, but the idea of something a bit more solid, I'd really recommend trying Alpha. I love Alpha. Um, And actually, that's the whole part of it, is to explore thinking about um, the kind of reasons behind our faith, rather than just something that we pluck out the air as something we'd like to do. Um, We've got a new course starting in the autumn, so do check out our website. Um, But there's more than just the historical and biblical evidence of following Jesus. Once we start to follow Jesus, we start to get personal encounter with him. We start to get prayers answered. We start to see acts of God in the community that we're in. And all of those things can remind us of God's faithfulness towards us. But we do easily forget. We forget what God has done before. Luckily, it's not just us. It's a human condition. And if we look back to the story of Moses before Rahab, um, I'll just recap it again and this time emphasize why it seems a bit silly that they kept forgetting. So first off, God had led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt using 10, not one, 10 unexplained plagues. And then, just to top it off, he split the Red Sea in two so that they could get through. Then, when they were complaining that they didn't like the food, they didn't have any food, he rained down manna, some sort of bread thing, from heaven. And then they complained they they wanted some meat, so then he gave them some quails. And then um, they got loads of other stuff, and then um, he was was leading them through fire, and it was amazing. Um, All of that stuff... But the Israelites were like, hmm, I'm not really sure. So they made a golden calf and worshipped that instead. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'd experienced ten random plagues, the Red Sea splitting in two, and then manna and quails coming down from heaven for me to eat, I'd like to think I didn't forget. But we do forget. We forget what God has done. And it's so important for us to remind ourselves as a community what he has done for us. For the last four years, I have been head of year for a group of students down in Bridgewater. And it all started one morning when I was driving to school and I was praying and I was just praying that I just didn't feel I was having enough impact in the community I was working in. I just I said, God, if you've got any doors to open, can you open the doors for me to have just an impact into the community? A few, and then I got to school and I forgot about it. And a few hours later, the head teacher knocked on the door. Now, I don't know, if some of you might be a teacher in here, but I did that classic thing where you put one foot, one ear, and one eye in the classroom. One foot, one ear, and one eye, talking to the teacher, um, stood outside the classroom. Um, and she just said to me, will you be ahead of you? That was it. No application, no interview, no idea that this was coming, no idea that we were even looking for a head of year. She just asked me. I mean, my first reaction was, 
God, that wasn't quite what I meant. Um, but then my second reaction was, well, yes, I guess I have to say yes, because that was the prayer. Um, but it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. The job was tiring, it was emotionally draining, and it wasn't always very rewarding. There were a number of times I wanted to give up, and it was probably the first time since I became a teacher that I wasn't so keen to go into school each day, because I didn't quite know what each day would hold. However, when I did remember, I had that inner joy that even on the hardest days, God trusted me with this job. I had asked, and he had been faithful. He knew I could do it, even if I wasn't so sure. And actually, it didn't matter all the time that I didn't enjoy it, because I was trusting in him. And in that, there was, there was a contentness that you don't get with anything else. And on that last day, just gone in May, with my year group, uh, when they had left into the big, big wide world, um, I knew that he had worked through me. There wasn't perfection, there were major scars of where this broken world had seeped into their lives, but there was a faint light of Jesus in that year group that I knew was through him. So how do we make sure that our daily decisions are based on God's faithfulness and the trust that we can see um, working through our lives? And do we pray big enough prayers that allow us to see Jesus at work in those around us? And do we share stories in our community to bolden our faith in what God can do? Rahab had made her decision on her faith and knowledge of God's character and works. The second thing I think we see from Rahab's decision is that she made her decision on a covenantal agreement or a committed promise. In verse 12, Rahab says, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. And in verse 14, the men reply, Our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. These statements are quite similar to some of the laws that Moses um, earlier in the Bible got from um, as in Israelite law. You might have heard of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, another one is when God says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. I've done this, so you do this. And in our passage, actually, where it says, show kindness, or I've shown kindness, another way we can translate that is um, have covenantal loyalty or have commitment. Rahab's decision to hide the Israelites and then be saved into their tribe was based on this idea of a covenant or a promise. I've done this, so now you do this. Sometimes I think we can treat our faith a bit like that. If I do this then God might do this. Or, if I'm good enough, God might love me. But let's jump forward in the Bible a little bit. And it says, um, jump forward to the New Testament, um, which another way of translating that is the New Covenant. And we see a slightly different kind of promise being portrayed here. In the letter to the Hebrews, it's written, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. 
through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, where he conquered the power of sin and death, enabling us to see his kingdom come near on earth as in heaven, to open up the gate to have a never-ending relationship with him. God is making a new covenant. But it's still a covenant. In the letter to the church in Rome in chapter 10, it states, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our decision to follow Jesus every day um, is based on this new covenant. Jesus has done it all, but we still need to claim it, to claim our adoption as sons and daughters in the new kingdom and declare that relationship and faith in Jesus. Just like in our story, which I think is a slight foretelling, a slight shadow of this new covenant to come, Rahab is a vulnerable party in this agreement. In this situation, she is a woman, she is a prostitute, and she is a Canaanite. And she's making an agreement with these powerful men of Israel. It's kind of a shadow of the new covenant. We have no power to save ourselves. We have no power to enter that agreement without the overwhelming grace of Jesus. He has made a way, but we get to choose that way, that new identity in Jesus every single day. Back again to our letter to the Romans, it's a bit of a favourite of mine. He writes in chapter 8, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We are children of the living God. If we choose, we are adopted into his family and given a new identity in his kingdom. Krish Kandaya has written a great book on this. He is the founder of the charity Home for Good. Um, is currently chair of the Adoption and Special Guardianship Leadership Board. I just like the title, it's quite nice and long. Uh, so he advises the English government on adoption and fostering. Um, but he's written a really good book called The Greatest Secret, where he talks about what it's like to be adopted as a child of God. Um, but in this book, he relates this idea to accepting and receiving this new identity to the Princess Diaries. Don't know if you've ever seen it. I loved it as a child. Me and my sister watched it all the time, to the point where she took the DVD out too many times, scratched it, and it no longer worked. Not that I hold a grudge. Um, but this story is a story of a sort of fairly goofy, untrendy in the popular scene teenage girl living with her single mother in relative poverty in San Francisco. And then one day, a European in a limousine arrives at her house and she discovers she is the last surviving heir to the throne of Genovia, a fictional country. Um, I think it's probably every girl's dream. It's like, oh, I'm actually a princess. I don't know, maybe. Um, but she's expe expected to accept this new identity and transform into an elegant princess overnight, ready to be crowned and take on her royal role. It's not that simple. It takes a while for her to even accept this new identity. Does she even want the title of Princess of Genovia? And then secondly, it takes her a while to actually transform into this new, um, new identity, including a dramatic genetic hair transformation where frizzy hair never seems to trouble Anne Hathaway again. Question I still have about the film now. Um, vulnerable Rahab in our story made her decision to enter the covenantal agreement with these men, but she received that agreement with trust. Do we? 
Do we hold fast to that covenantal relationship that Jesus has won for us? Theologian Henry Nguyen wrote, when someone gives us a watch but we never wear it, that watch is not really received. When someone offers us an idea but we do not respond to it, that idea is not truly received. When someone introduces us to a friend but we ignore him or her, that friend does not feel well received. Receiving is an art. So have we today welcomely received the grace of Jesus Christ? Have we made a decision to follow Jesus in our hearts? Have we entered this new identity as a child of God, adopted into his kingdom? Do we remind ourselves each day of this identity and the characteristics that that takes on? So Rahab's decision in this story was based on her faith, the faithfulness and works of God and on the covenantal promise. Finally, I think we see that Rahab's decision leads to an outward expression. In verse 17 of our reading, we see the men say to Rahab, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. And then in the final verse we read, Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Rahab's decision caused her to act. By this point she'd already sacrificed her safety and her family's safety. Now she is outwardly declaring her decision to trust these men by tying a scarlet cord in the window. And some, some scholars have argued that this kind of scarlet cord is kind of a symbol that's related to the Passover when the Israelites put the blood of a lamb over their doorway um, to save them from one of the plagues. So now what are our professions as a church? What are our outward professions of faith? And two of the main ones I want to just briefly touch on is baptism and communion. And I promise I wasn't primed for this. I didn't know there was a notice on baptism today. Um, but baptism, when we're dunked in water, um, it's our, to de publicly declare our faith in Jesus Christ. It's a powerful symbol. Um, and we see it through the book of Acts in the Bible where believers are baptized, including Paul, who was Saul, when Ananias said to him very bluntly, I, mean, I enjoy this quite a lot, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. If you have put your faith in Jesus but have yet to be baptized, I really encourage you to start having that conversation with someone. Um, email through to hello at stnicholasbristol.org um, and get in touch with someone. Secondly, in communion that we celebrate together, we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do this by publicly declaring that faith. That's when we read those long prayers to get all together. And we receive his grace. And then we receive bread, and in non-COVID times, wine, um, to remember all he has done for us. Both baptism and communion are powerful declarations of our decision to follow Jesus. And both of them unite us as a church. It lives out that amazing passage in Galatians which says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ. Um, sorry. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
What else might you do to outwardly declare that decision you've made to follow Jesus? How can you flavor conversations with his story? How can you shape your work around his grace? We've seen today that Rahab made her decision um, of following the faith of the God of Israel by basing her decision on God's faithfulness and works through deciding with a covenantal promise and deciding with an outward expression. You might be wondering what happened to Rahab next. Well, the men did come back with an army in a battle that, uh, with a terrific defeat of God's doing. Um, I'd read it in Joshua 6 to find out more. Um, and Rahab and her family were indeed saved from Jericho. We next hear of Rahab at the start of Matthew's Gospel, one of the accounts of Jesus' life. It's the bit right at the start that potentially you might skip through when you read Matthew's Gospel because it's just a list of names. But on the tenth line down, you get this Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab, a woman, a prostitute, and a Canaanite, appears in the family tree of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Isn't God so transformative and so loving? But that itself is not the last time we hear of her. In the letter to the Hebrews, the writer is going through a list of heroes of the faith. And they say, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were unbelieving. Her faith stood the test of time. And we're still reading about her decisions today. So what would it look like if we shaped our decisions in the same way Rahab did? What would happen if we shared more stories of God's faithfulness and prayed bigger prayers? Could our church family step out into greater and bolder things, seeing a greater transformation of our city and see the kingdom of God at work? What would happen if we remembered our identity as adopted children in those covenantal promises of God based on the work of Jesus? How would that shine out differently to the world around us and invite other people into the freedom of that identity? What would it look like if we were firm and bold in our outward expressions and involved God in our everyday decisions? How might that impact the people we see every day, the places we work and the society around us? Do our decisions stand up to the same critique as Rahab's? Would you like to stand whilst I pray? Yeah, God, we thank you for the story of Rahab. We thank you for her decisions that she made um, and the story that we can now see as um, a way to think about our own decisions. Jesus, we thank you um, for the covenantal promises that allow us to have a relationship with you. Jesus, we thank you that you have done it all. And we ask that you help us to, rem to remind us each day of those decisions. God, we thank you that um, you call us to outwardly express and declare our faith in you. We pray for boldness and courage to do that every day. 
Amen.